This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Annika, thanks so much for coming on at uh, yeah, early morning me. to talk about mm-hmm. a deep topic like consciousness. Mm-hmm. Very good to have you here. So uh, obviously, we were talking just a bit off air. Um, You know, one of the things as I was going through your book, and just talking about such a deep topic like consciousness, uh, Mm. the book is called Conscious, of course, It, 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 one of the first things that I thought was just trying to wrap my head around the definition of what Mm. consciousness actually means, and perhaps it means something different to other people. So for your definition, Mm. maybe we could just break down how you would give an overview of what conscious is. Yeah, no, it's um, it's definitely important to start there because the word is used in a variety of ways. And um, often people are referring to um, something much more complex than than what I'm referring to. So often people are referring to higher order functions like complex thought and language, um, self-awareness. Um, a, a lot of people actually mistakenly think that consciousness, to, in order to be conscious, you have to be aware of the fact that you're conscious or aware of yourself kind of at a, at a meta level. And that that is not um, what I'm talking about, although, of course, of course all of those things are related. But so um, the... The way I use the word consciousness is really um, analogous to experience. Um, and so it could be the most simple experience that we could imagine. Um, there's no consensus on whether worms are conscious, but if there's there's you know good reason to think they are. They have brains and nervous systems. So if you imagine a worm is conscious, it's obviously not aware of itself, it's not having thoughts, it's not doing, you know, there's there's nothing really complex going on, but you can imagine some very simple felt experience of, um, you know, its skin moving through the dirt of maybe heat and cold of moving towards food or away from food. Um, so very, very, whatever the most, um, minimal felt experience you can imagine. Um, if, if there is an experience there at all, that is, is what I'm calling consciousness. And that is really where the mystery lies because, um, as you know, we, we are really made of the same ingredients of everything else in the universe. We, we are matter. There's, there's no special ingredient that gets injected in order for, for living beings to become conscious, right? We're all made of, of the same things that stars are made of. And so the, the, the real mystery and the real question, um, and the thing that I'm so interested in is why when, you know, this apparently non-conscious matter in the universe gets configured in a very specific way, suddenly the lights come on from the inside. Suddenly there's there's an experience of being that matter, of being those atoms. Um, and we really ha- have, have made little um, progress on answering that question. That question is often referred to as the hard problem of consciousness. Um, 
which is um, was coined by uh, David Chalmers. He's a philosopher um, who has written a lot on the subject and has really influenced my thinking. Um, he he he. So he talks about it as the hard problem, as opposed to um, kind of jokingly the easy problems of consciousness, which is correlating the different types of experiences we have with um, brain activity, uh, which is of course not not an easy job. <laughs> but yeah. at least those are those are not mysterious in the same sense. They're not mysterious at their core. We can see when the brain is in this state. Um, you know, a person is having an experience of vision. We know there's a visual center. We we can correlate different types of experiences with processes in the brain. But the question is why any of those processes are a felt experience, why it feels like something to be those processes. And that, that's what's considered to be the hard problem um, or the mystery of consciousness. Sure, yeah. And just the complexity of being able to break down using the limitations of the language that you know that we've humans have invented yeah trying to describe something that humans just can't even really imagine is really the limitations of it even the english language has its own limitations versus i don't know if you speak other languages i don't uh well it's 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 you know for example like the japanese word there's a word like kokoro which is a word that describes the connection between the mind, body, and soul. And we just don't have words like that to even describe it in the English language. And I I agree, like, it's kind of difficult to describe what something complex as consciousness is. Yes. Uh, I'm sure a lot of people have been confused with that. And one of the things that you mentioned is the difference between complex thought versus consciousness. And Mm. what are some examples that you could provide that makes that mm. distinction of why that's so different. Mm. Um, yeah. So I think we, we generally tend to anthropomorphize um, most things. Um, and so we are conscious beings and um, we tend to imagine, and this is, this, uh, so, so my book, a lot of my book and my work is about breaking through false intuitions and false assumptions in order to get a deeper understanding of, of the nature of reality, um, which is part of the scientific process in, in every area, especially in areas where we're facing something that, is, that seems mysterious to us. Um, and maybe I'll, I'll just give a few examples there um, before moving forward, just because my, my book, really the emphasis is on um, shaking up our intuitions, breaking through false intuitions, trying to figure out which assumptions are false and which ones aren't about consciousness. Um, And so in science, this is often the first step. Um, In all of the major breakthroughs, you know, everything from understanding that the earth is a sphere um, and not flat, you know, is a false intuition that we have just based on our perceptions that we have available to us. Um, The germ theory of disease is always an example I give. Um, We just don't, we weren't set up with senses to be able to detect microscopic organisms and understand that they can harm us. And so um, when we encounter these things that we don't understand, there's usually um, a period that we simply don't have intuitions for most of the time. There's usually a, um, excuse me, a period in science where um, we're really faced with counterintuitive evidence and it takes a period of time before we can kind of absorb that new evidence and shift our intuitions or just be willing to let them go so that we can 
really see the truth for what it is so that we can really understand that even though the earth feels flat, it's it's actually a sphere and here's the evidence and it starts to actually shift our intuitions a bit. Um, and so I think we're at a point like that with consciousness right now. I think there's a lot in neuroscience, um, in modern neuroscience already that we understand. We, there are some illusions that we know that we have. Um, there's a lot about how the brain works that tells us that a lot of our intuitions are false. Um, and these are things that, that inform our thinking about consciousness. They're not specifically about consciousness, but we, so, so we're in this period of needing to kind of absorb information that we have but also um, in, a, in a spot where I think it's very important for us to start asking really basic questions about our strongest intuitions about consciousness. And usually those are that consciousness serves a function, which it may, we, we really don't know, but this is a very strong assumption that people have been unwilling, very unwilling to ask. So we assume consciousness is, is really guiding our behavior. Um, we assume that, you know, I, there, it, it wouldn't be possible for me to make a decision about taking a job offer or not if I weren't conscious, right? Mm. And that's a, you know, that's a safe sure. assumption to make. But the question is, can we imagine um, an AI or can we imagine other processing that could make that decision without there being an experience of what it's like to be, to be that organism? And so, um, so yeah, so, so most of my work is about getting as close as we can to our to our most tightly held assumptions about consciousness and then seeing if we can shake them up and seeing if we there's another way to think about things um, or n new intuitions to to start to absorb into our way of thinking about things. And now I've lost your question, but I know it was related. <laughs> it was related, so yeah. I was going somewhere with that. Tell me your question again. No, this is where we want to go. We, we were talking about the differences of how someone can make, the, the I guess, the false uh intuition that most people have of associating the correlation of complex thought and consciousness uh, and the yes. importance okay. of distingu distinguishing right that. you're asking for examples yes um so yes so so I, I i i mostly did answer that then i guess so so we tend to as i said anthropomorphize and so we think that because we're conscious beings and our brains are the most complex thing we know of in, in the universe at this point. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, and the only way we have access to anyone else's conscious experience is through their communication of it, right? There's no way to know it's, it's one of, and it's one of the things that makes it so difficult to study um, and makes it so mysterious is there's no way to have access from the outside. There, the, the conscious experience is there and you're either having it or you're not. And mm. um, even though I, you know, completely believe that, that you are conscious, the, the strange reality is I can't have any direct evidence of it. All that can happen is you can convince me by explaining what your experience is like. It's close enough to mine that I assume you're conscious um, as I am. So as things become less like us, we tend to assume um, or we have less of um, a confidence that they have consciousness. And so um, 
And and the same is true of all the things that we assume consciousness is for, and and thinking is is one of them for sure, and language, um, and experiencing pain, and you know the whole range of things that we experience. If there are other creatures around us that seem to be exhibiting some similar behaviors, seem to be having those same experiences, where we, we assume they're conscious, um, and and I really think. As crazy as it sounds, even still to me, after thinking about it all this time, I still think it's an open question about whether consciousness is actually even a complex phenomenon. Um, mm. And so, what do you mean by that? So yes, uh, so most people and most scientists at this point assume that consciousness arises, that it, that it's an emergent property that arises out of complex processing. Um, many scientists at this point, because of our advancements in AI, are open to the idea that um, some advanced AI could develop consciousness um, based on the complexity and the integration of of ideas and information and decision making and all of those things that, that our brains do. Um, because we assume that it's this complex processing in our brains that somehow at some point gives rise to consciousness, which again may, may in fact be true. Mm -hmm. um, but it is actually more of an open question than most people realize. We are mostly going on intuition and very old assumptions um, and not on evidence. That we have no evidence that, that consciousness is a complex phenomenon or um, and so, so one thing that we've, we're kind of jumping to, we're, we're bumping up against very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> we're skipping, uh, which skipping some chapters. usually takes yeah. longer to get to. Yeah, this, yeah. this concept of panpsychism. And the truth is, I'm, I'm not using this word really in my writing anymore and even in my discussions. Um, hmm. But just, you know, briefly, panpsychism is, is kind of an umbrella term for theories that place consciousness at a fundamental level. Um, the older theories, which is where it comes from, um, don't sound very modern or scientific. And so I, I actually don't really see a use for that term at all. I think um, especially where we've come um, to with quantum mechanics and all of these questions about whether space-time is even fundamental, which many, many um, top physicists who, who are working on interpretations of quantum mechanics um, are, are starting to say now that it's very likely space-time, or at least space. There's some question about time, but that this is an emergent phenomenon, that this isn't what the fundam fundamental nature of reality is. Um, and so I think we can simply ask the question, is it possible that consciousness is actually much more fundamental than we have assumed? And, it, and it's something that's very simple and basic and not part of complex phenomena. And I think it's a very open question and it may or may not be. Um, but I just think that at this point, that's a clear, legitimate question for scientists. And we were talking yeah. earlier, I, I really think this is a question for a collaboration between physicists and neuroscientists. But in some ways, I think of this as, as more in the realm of physics, even the neuroscience. I think neuroscience will be able to inform a lot of this work. Um, but yeah, there, there are many reputable physicists who are, who are working on um, this very question. Is it, and the question is simply, is consciousness um, a fundamental feature of the universe in the form of a field or um, you know, there it's it's a big question, so it's it's it hard is. to know how, how that would take shape. But yeah, yeah, and we'll so definitely... I, t I tend to just ask it as a legitimate scientific question rather than use an ism, which is old and doesn't really apply to 
everything we know now, I think. Yeah, it's a hard word to say. It just sounds yeah. kind of weird. People think <laughs> yeah. about uh, like other really things. Really don't like I think. that word. Yeah, yeah, just I don't know who invented that word, but anyways. Yeah. 16th um, century, yeah. Definitely, yeah. Uh, and I think we'll talk all about a lot of things that will probably you know, boggle people's minds in terms of what we have led to been believing through our whole lives and, and what are some of these things that aren't true. We talked about someone like Daniel Hoffman, Donald Hoffman, who's, who's claiming yeah. that space-time is doomed. Like you're, you're going putting it on a far, far spectrum in that case, but from... Yeah, although I should say he, he's yeah. quoting physicists. I mean, he's, he's mm. taking what the physicists are saying. Um, and in that case, I think he's directly quoting a physicist at, at Princeton, um, Nima Arkani Hamed, um, who is kind of in, in in this group of physicists who feels fairly certain sure. um, that that space time is is emergent? Yeah. Well, to go back to the, the kind of defining what consciousness is and, and kind of the false intuitions, I do think that because we are led to believe as humans that we are conscious beings, so we look at similar individuals like yourself, and we just kind of naturally, intuitively think, okay, she's also a conscious being, and mm-hmm. I guess for humans, we associate that with, uh, you know, the, the, the reactions of physical harm or being able mm-hmm. to care for others and mm-hmm. being able to make certain decisions, I guess. Um, I think this kind of brings us to the idea of locked-in syndrome. Uh, and yeah. I think in the book, you talked about a guy named Jean-Dominique uh, Bobby, who had That's only right. the ability to blink his, his left, right eye or something like that, one of his eyes. One eye, he had, he, yeah, he had mobility in one eyelid. Yes, um, I forget which one, but yeah, there's one. It was Regardless. he was completely paralyzed, but for one eyelid that he was able to to blink that eye, yeah, or wink. <laughs> yeah, and I guess the yeah. the takeaway there is that without the ability to do that, no one else from the outside world would have been able to know that he was conscious and and it's it's just like the natural intuition that we have is like movement or some sort of life would be the only Mm -hmm. thing that is required for consciousness i I had a woman named victoria arlen on Mm. uh and she had i guess something similar to anesthesia coma Mm. where she had the ability to think and hear but her entire body was paralyzed for four years and oh wow! She went this was this... this was based on anesthesia, or this, this was a it was based on a coma. It was a very rare um, disease. I guess that... my question is: Did okay? It was a, it didn't begin with a surgery where she was put under and then. No, I don't think so. I think she, I think went there, into a coma. Yeah, mm-hmm. it was a slow degradation, and eventually she became paralyzed. Okay. But okay. you know, in a situation like that, people just assumed that she was a vegetable for yes. three, four years. Um, yes. So I, I guess talk to me a little bit about the idea of lock yeah. syndrome. And, yeah. 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 Well, so um, I use some of these examples as um, ways of, of challenging our intuitions in, in this way about what consciousness is. And, and yes, that's a very good example of, um, so actually I'll bring it to these, these two questions that I always think are really important for guiding this conversation. I bring them up early in my book. Um, they're related. They almost seem like the same question, but they're slightly different. The first one is, um, is there any clear evidence that we can point to on the outside and in behavior that we can point to and say, 
there is consciousness present in that system or in that organism. Um, so is there something we can see on the outside where if we see that thing, whatever it is, can we make a list or can we, you know, say, if you see this behavior, if you see this externally, there is consciousness present on the inside. Um, and we all feel very strongly that the answer is yes. And we can list a whole list of things that we think, if I see this behavior, if I see my child crying after she falls down, um, you know, the, the list goes on and on, then yes, that that is concrete evidence. Um, we can talk a, a little bit about why that may or may not be true. Um, and, and looking at plant behavior is one area. We can go there next, um, which I yeah. think is very interesting. Um, to look at where certain behaviors, it, it, it is, it's not as easy to answer these questions as we would think. And our intuitions start to fall apart the deeper we deep. Um, and so the second question is, is consciousness doing anything? Is it guiding our behavior? Um, is it helping us make choices? Is it, is it the thing that drives anything that we do, including thoughts and decisions? And, and again, we have a very strong sense that the answer is yes. And there are a lot of reasons actually um, to question that. There are a lot of things that kind of undermine that intuition. And so locked-in syndrome is interesting because it's it's the opposite of having evidence of behavior. There is, we, we know, and this is an interesting counterpoint, we know that it's possible to have zero behavior, to not be able to witness anything at all from the outside. Um, and there can be as full a conscious experience as you and I are having right now present. Um, I just retweeted, I forget who, who it came from, but I had seen it through the, the neuroscientist Anil Seth um, mm. shared this on Twitter a couple of years ago that it's a, um, it must be in a, in a science museum. It's a photo. Have you seen this of a, uh-huh. of a brain of a brain and a central nervous system of a human being um, just, you know, like on a medical table. And the caption is, if this were still alive, it would be conscious. And there's something so interesting about that, um, and it's it's very similar to locked-in syndrome because it really challenges our intuitions about what we normally take as evidence uh, of consciousness in a system and where we assume there isn't consciousness and where we assume there is and how we could be wrong on both sides of the spectrum. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, there, there's there's a lot to, to talk about there in terms of locked-in syndrome. Um, I could, was as I was just going to move on to plants, but I didn't want to move on too quickly. If you if you wanted to talk more about kind of that that state and and what we can learn from it. Yeah, I mean, I th- I think there's it, it kind of presents the opposite situation of of what we normally define as consciousness, and and I think plants are a good segue to that in terms of particularly yeah. the the situation you talk about with Douglas firs and and the Venus flytrap. I mean, uh-huh. maybe we can give right. people an overview of, of sure. like say examples of that, which is going to log people's minds, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So there, I, I learned actually just doing research for, for my book. Um, I, I knew a little bit about it before, but now, now I know a lot more and I'm even more dumbfounded by it. Um, Crazy. there are extremely complex plant behaviors. Um, Daniel Chamovitz is a great person to read. He wrote a, um, a book, What a Plant Knows. Um, he, he has done a lot of research about plant senses, um, including the DNA and, and genes that are responsible for certain senses and the crossover, the, the genes that we share with plants. Actually, I'll just give this one example. I mm-hmm. find it so interesting. So, so one way plants sense their environment um, is through light. 
And, you know, we, we've all had some experience, whether it's through um, time-lapse photography or just having a house plant that happens. Some house plants move a lot more than others. And if you have one that moves a lot, you can see it um, gravitating towards the light and moving its position or opening and closing um, flowers, you know, de depending on the lighting situation. And so they, they have receptors for light and they're responding to them in real mm -hmm. time. Um, and it turns out, um, this is Daniel Shamovitz's work, that we share this gene, this light detecting gene with plants. Um, and it regulates all kinds of things in the human body related to light, um, including circadian rhythms. And obviously, it's, it's you know, it's very differently um, expressed in, in humans, but it's interesting that not only does some of the behavior in plants um, turn out to be much more complex than we would necessarily just know in, in our in our daily observations, but they're similar down to the DNA. Um, and what's interesting to me about this is we assume plants are not conscious, and that's still my my general starting place and assumption. Although I've I've started to wonder <laughs> um, what. So kind you don't of think you don't would... think plants are conscious? That's that's kind of the that's, stance that's a, that you have. A, very strong intuition I have. I mean, the truth is I'm open to consciousness being a fundamental feature of the universe, in which case, you know, there is some level of consciousness, however impossible it is for me to imagine, in the chair I'm sitting on. So mm -hmm. I'm, I'm obviously also open to plants. <laughs> <laughs> um, I do think, though, I should say that when we're contemplating systems that are very dissimilar to us, entailing some level of consciousness, entailing experience, I think we have to be very careful to not anthropomorphize that. And so um, if there is some kind of consciousness, if there is some kind of felt experience that happens in a plant, um, it is nothing like the human experience because the matter is is so different. You know, in the same yeah. way that this gene produces very different behavior in, in a plant um, than it does in a human being, we're just, we're not we're not very similar creatures. And so the idea that um, I think some people jump to if something's conscious, again, they're making that connection. They assume it, they have complex processing, complex thoughts. And so they suddenly assume a plant is like a human and has feelings of love. And, you know, you can speak telepathically to your plant. And I, I wouldn't subscribe to any of that. Um, but I am open to the idea that these processes could have a felt experience um, associated with them. Yeah. So, yeah, so plants, I mean, they, they also feel their environment. You know, the way vines are able to wrap themselves around, climb up walls, is they're actually sensing the, the material that they're wrapping themselves around. And the Venus flytrap is, is one of the more trippy <laughs> um, displays of this where they're really waiting to sense um, for food to, to arrive. Yeah, beetle, um, a frog. Sure. Yeah. yeah. And so there are two hairs and they have to be touched um, in succession, but within a certain time frame. And so the plant is keeping track of all of this. The plant has a sort of memory of how long ago the first hair was touched. And so there's, there's a way that living creatures move so that it's, it's kind of got an algorithm for it is very likely to be a living creature I can consume if it touches hair A and, to, and then hair B within a certain time frame. And the second that second hair is touched within the right time frame, it snaps shut. And so there's... Um, it's crazy. There's, like know, one tenth of a second, movement. right? Right. And so yeah. a lot of the behaviors on that list, when I talked about these first two questions, um, 
you know, what evidence can we see on the outside? A lot of the things, if we were to make a list, it's actually hard to not include a lot of plant behavior. Um, and you, you were talking about the trees. This is um, Susan Samard's work um, where she she researched um, underground inter-tree communication um, in the Canadian forest. Um, a lot of fascinating facts were revealed about this. Um, the thing that, that I find the most interesting and the most um, related to behavior that we would assume it ha has to do with consciousness are the trees were able to recognize their own kin. Um, mm -hmm. And so there, you know, there are all these trees in the forest, different species of trees. The trees um, can recognize the trees that grew from their own seedlings um, throughout the forest. And they have these complex networks, mycorrhizal networks, fungal networks, um, where they communicate and share um, carbon. And, um, and they, so these, these mother trees, as she calls them, deliver more carbon to their own kin than they do to the other trees that they're sharing with. Yeah, um, they'll also make more room for the roots of their kin. Um, and there's very complex behavior and communication going on that um, at a similar level in humans, um, we assume consciousness is present. And so the main reason I actually bring up plant behavior in my book is, is for the opposite reason, actually not to convince people that plants are conscious, but to shake up this intuition we have that if there's certain behavior present, there is consciousness present. And if there mm. isn't, there's not, and how easily we can look at plants and not even notice all of this complex behavior and very easily assume there's no consciousness present. And so how can that be applied to other areas as well? And why is it that um, when I look at a, a dog, um, for instance, I don't assume the dog is like the tree, right? Like what, what is it? What do I think um, is proof that consciousness is present in one place and not another. And these, the lines start to get very blurry and does, confusing yeah. when you look at them closely. Yeah. Yeah. And just like the loose definition of, you know, if we're talking about consciousness as something that can react to physical harm or care for others. I mean, the two examples of, you know, the, uh, of the, of the plants and, and the Douglas firs and the birch trees, like those meet the definitions that most it people is would what think they're about. Doing. Sure. Sure. Um, and all of these behaviors in human beings also, they evolved in the same way that they evolved in plants. Um, yeah. We do have this kind of strong intuition that there's something magical about human beings that we're not, we have this strong sense a lot of the time that we're not a part of nature, that we're not animals too, that we're not. But it's it's interesting to to consider, you know, how strongly, I mean, obviously we are, we are nature. <laughs> yeah. Um, we came about in due to very similar processes and we are trying to survive in the same way that they are. And the idea that consciousness begins at a certain complexity, um, is not so easy to, to find evidence for. Yeah. And we'll definitely go into this idea of our sense of self and this mm, human yeah. natural human tendency to attach ourselves to the self that we have. But I think yeah. the, the question that I had for you in terms of, yeah. you know, this example around plant consciousness is that I think it seems like most people are looking at consciousness as like this black or white thing, like you either have it or you mm -hmm. don't. But mm. can we think about consciousness as a spectrum mm. where some species may have 
perhaps a greater diversity of it, like humans. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And but it doesn't mean that someone that has a lower diversity of it is not conscious. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think um, yeah. So this this quickly will feed into this this idea of, of self, and this is something I've been reading a lot about recently. Actually, it's just the neuroscience of how how the experience of self gets created by by the brain. Um, but in terms of the spectrum, there's clearly a spectrum, um, even in the things that we know, we know are conscious, but the thing that's interesting and where the mystery lies is we assume that at the low end of the spectrum, at some point, the lights go out, right? That if you look at a sandy beach, the sand, there's no experience in that sand whatsoever. Right. Mm -hmm. And then you kind of start moving up the scale at some point, whether it's in a worm um, wherever that place is that we think, yes, yeah, some felt experience is happening there. Um, there's a point at which you drop off the spectrum or you jump onto the spectrum. And that moment to me, um, is really the, the focus of my work and, and what I'm interested in and is the thing that seems so mysterious. It's maybe not true. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, so so once once you're on the spectrum, there there there's clearly a spectrum there, um, especially in terms of content. So I often and neuroscientists usually speak this way too. They they separate consciousness and content. So um, if if you're a conscious being, um, you're bumblebee, and you're maybe aware of some light and some sensation and you're moving towards bees and you have some feeling to head toward the queen bee, you know, whatever, whatever minimal experience you have, all of that is content, right? And they have the wavelengths of light that are available to them. Um, Human beings are are capable of experiencing much more content than that, much more complex content, Uh, you know, ideas and stories and rocket ships, you know, all the rest. And so, um, it's hard to say whether there's truly a spectrum of consciousness or whether it is only a spectrum of content. Mm-hmm. I tend to assume it's the latter. I tend to assume um, consciousness is more of a binary thing. It's either there or it's not. And then you can bring in a lot more content. I think if you're looking at kind of, let's just take vision, you know, if you're having an experience of seeing something and it's very fuzzy, um, let's say that your whole field of vision is blurry. Um, that could seem like you might want to describe it as lower down in the spectrum than if the scene you're looking at is very vivid and sharp and has tons of color and all this um, information you can you can gather from it. But I think the level of consciousness in those cases is the same. It's just the content that changes. Right. Um, so that that is the way the way that I, I lean. But in, in some sense, there there is a spectrum. And even if it's true that there is a spectrum of conscious level, um, yeah, there's clearly a point at which we expect you drop off. And there are certain things that where the lights are completely off and there's no yeah. felt experience at all. Well, yeah. the, where is that cutoff line? That's what I'm curious, at least from your perspective. Oh, yeah. we, we know humans, we know animals, we can, mm. I guess the debate is the plants is kind of where that might be, where we're thinking about yes or no. It usually comes higher than that. Like mo- I, okay. I, the worm is, a, is the example I usually use because there's no consensus about whether mm. worms are having a conscious experience. And, and many insects too, I think. Um, you know, Many well-respected neuroscientists disagree about what type of brain processing is required for consciousness 
to come online. And so, yeah, once you get down to insects and worms, it's that that's where you really start to have a disagreement and, and our intuitions start to disappear. Um, we right. just no longer have intuitions for whether those things are conscious or not. Um, yeah. And it's just so and plants, far. It, it's hard to find a scientist who, who thinks plants are conscious. <laughs> Um, gotcha. Oh, you gotcha. you just froze. Oh, am I back? It's, uh, oh, it says we lost the connection. You probably can't hear me. I can hear you. Let I me think, know when I'm back. Uh, if you can hear me. Oh, you're back. Yeah. Did you hear me that whole time? I could, I oh, could hear okay. you the whole time. Yeah, yeah. I'm not Weird. sure what happened okay. there, but I'll, I'll, I'll time I'm stamp I'm sure that. the problem's on my end. Okay. Yeah. Well, I think this is you a good were, lead. You were about to say something. <laughs> yeah, I was just mentioning, you know, um, I guess uh, I, I think this is a good leeway into this idea of the sense of self. And I think maybe a precursor mm. to that would be talking a little bit about the split brain. Because I think that mm. those examples mm. can kind of really help reshape mm -hmm. this idea of the sense of self. Can you talk a little yeah. bit about the, the split brain experiment? Yeah. yeah, and I might actually even just make a clear um, distinction just to make sure that the terminology is clear um, mm -hmm. because self is another word like consciousness that is used a lot of different ways. <clears throat> Excuse me. And a lot of the time when people talk about the self, they're talking about the auto autobiographical self. Um, so the autobiographical self is, is basically, you know, everything I've retained from my memory, the sense that I, I am the same person I was when I was three, even though I'm obviously, you know, very different, but that there, that there is a, um, center that has moved through time, all of which in, in some way is me and my story. And that includes my name and all of the experiences I've had and where I live and, and all of these facts. Mm. Um, and so some people might say that, you know, if I, if I woke up with amnesia tomorrow and couldn't remember any of these details, that I would have lost my sense of self, which is which is true in a sense, but that's not the self that I'm talking about. Um, so someone who has amnesia will still say things like, I can't remember my name, I, mm. I don't know where I live, I, you know, I'm confused. And they're referring to an I that feels very substantial still, even though they have no details to describe it, they still have a sense that they are an I, that they um, are, are kind of a single point. I mean, it's it's interesting when you get people to try to talk about what, what this actually entails, but it's, it's really where the idea um, of a belief in a soul comes from. And we all, you know, wh whatever our beliefs are and however much we know or, or don't know about the brain, we all still walk around with this very strong sense that there's, there's a me, there's a solid center um, that exists that almost, even though I'm, I'm saying it now and I know it's not true, but I, I still I almost have this sense that I could leave my body or, mm. and, and I refer to my body as my body, as if I'm, I'm here and yes, if I lost my right arm, I'd still be me. And kind of no matter what happens to my body, there's still a me somewhere, you know, riding in my brain. Um, and we know that's not the nature of reality. We know that everything I'm experiencing is brain processing. It is just constant electrical firing that's going on. And there is no self. There is no solid center that, that moves through time. Um, and so it's that more basic self that, that seeing how it's illusory, seeing how understanding how the brain, the brain creates that sense of being a self, um, 
can start to erode and and help you see through that illusion and how it kind of misguides our thinking in a lot of areas. Yeah, and that's a lot to take in for people that are listening yes. and realizing and then kind of reflecting on this for the first time. Yes. But I think there's some yes. positives to that. One of the things that, I, as I was reading your book, yeah. is is just to kind of reiterate. And, and I've certainly thought about this before. Is like you are not your thoughts in in terms of the perhaps the negative thoughts that you might have and the doubts that you might be facing in your regular lives mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. it, there is some positivity that you can be actionable in terms of improving the quality of your life by being Absolutely. able to separate that sense of self yes and actually and maybe we'll focus on that first because i think that's an important piece and i've been in in this audio series i'm working on it i'm actually talking a lot about that because some of these ideas the, the understanding how the self um, the experience of being a self is an illusion that that the brain creates and some um, disruptions or, or changes in the way we think about free will that we now you know we now understand how, how the brain works and and our typical sense of having free will and it's a it's a complicated discussion and I, I usually separate conscious will from free will um, but we have some false intuitions in these areas that when they're pointed out some people can find, um, destabilizing and, and disturbing and upsetting and there really is another way to look at it another way to frame it which is in fact the center of many spiritual traditions and so um, I think it's important to, to emphasize this and for people to understand there's there's a, there's a very positive way to experience this to view it um, there's something very freeing about it and the um, the experiences that have been studied scientifically, and these are through meditation. So many people um, in meditative states are able to drop this illusion of self. And we now know that it um, takes place in a part of the brain. It's it's a uh, sorry, it's not a part of the brain, but it's it's kind of a network called the ne- default mode network, which is mm-hmm. quieted during meditation, um, as it is during um, the influence of psychedelic different psychedelic substances which is, is also now being scientifically studied and um in all of these studies in these cases during meditation and during um being under the influence of psychedelics this is experienced as an extremely positive state um for most people completely transformative um curing people from um treatment-resistant depression from PTSD, and there, there are a lot of factors at work, but many of them credit seeing through the illusion of self as being part of the healing process. And for people who have this experience, it is a, an experience of feeling more connected to the universe, more connected to nature. I mean, it is kind of a dropping away of this separateness that is the source of so much of our psychological suffering and mm-hmm. is not in fact true. We are not, our brains are just not isolated from the environment. We really, we are much more interconnected with our environment and other people um, than we typically feel. We typically feel very separate as, as I was talking about. And so usually um, you know, the hearing about the idea can f- can feel destabilizing and scary, but the experience of actually dropping that illusion of self, which which I have um, had many times and, and can attest to, um, is a deeply. I, I always hesitate to use the word spiritual, but it's it's a deeply spiritual. Um, it's a, it has a very deep sense of of well being and and kind of the opposite of what some people might might assume. Yeah. Um, so I think it's important to say that, and the same with free will as as well, which is a harder one for people to to understand. Um, but there is a way in which um, 
being very in touch with the fact that we are a part of nature. Um, the universe is kind of unfolding in the way that's unfolding, and we magically have this felt experience of the universe unfolding in this way. There's something very, very beautiful about having that experience. Yeah, I mean, especially with the rise of people suffering with depression and loneliness. I, I think a practical example of that is kind of the the studies that you mentioned around psychedelics and LSD, where it, yeah after a consumption, it turns off a specific, I'm definitely not going to be able to name it properly, but it turns off a specific part of your brain that yeah, kind of makes you Yeah, the default mode network, it really quiets that down. Yeah. Right, mm -hmm. right. And you kind of lose this sense of self, which allows you to stop really being in your head more and yeah. seeing yourself as yeah. an isolated, you know, being, but more connected yeah. into, into nature. And I think it's just yeah. maybe an analogy to, to, to support that claim. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, these studies have had incredible success. It's really unlike any other drug that's ever been used for a treatment for these disorders, um, where many of them have 80 to 90 percent efficacy after one treatment. Um, and the and the effects can last for years. Yeah. 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 Well, I, hopefully we'll have some time to get into that. But um, yeah, do you do show notes? Because there are, there are a lot of links I can send. Um, we do definitely around yeah. all of this research. Okay. Yeah. That'd be awesome. I'll share um, that, yeah. So in terms of the split brain experiment, or at least the conjoining of brains, let's say, I think you talked about this in the book, okay, where yeah. let's say you took half of my brain uh, and <laughs> half of your brain, and what are, I think it's just interesting well, for we people could to take, hear. We could take the whole brain. We wouldn't need to leave half of it out. We could just connect our all, all of our brains. <laughs> Combine it into two, right? So like right. in a world that happens... Yeah. Uh, I think it's just in an interesting thought experiment for people to yes. even, people just don't yeah. think about this, you know, on a regular right. basis deeply. Well, I think, so, yeah. yeah, I think it's, it's, um, probably more, um, more helpful to start with the sp split brain research because that's something that has been done and that we do have, um, results on the, what people's experiences and, and it's mm -hmm. incredibly interesting and it really does also inform our, um, guesses about what might happen if we did merge two brains. Um, but so there's, um, I don't know how much your audience m might or might not be familiar with um, this surgery um, where uh, the, the patients who've undergone this surgery are, are called split brain patients where they, most of the time it's for um, epileptics who are having such severe seizures, they're, they're life-threatening or they just can't conduct their lives. And um, these are due to the fact that the seizure starts in, on one hemisphere of the brain and spreads. It's a grand mal seizure. It, it, it basically, the electrical storm takes over the whole brain. Um, and you know, this is very dangerous um, and also really disrupts people's lives. They, they can't function normally. Um, and so in, in the worst cases, they will perform a procedure in which they actually sever the connection between the right and left hemispheres of the brain. Mm. Um, and what's interesting, even though this is, you know, such a, such a severe thing to do for the most part, the patients afterwards seem like they, they basically behave the way they did before. They're very little, um, side effects that are noticeable from the outside. But what scientists started um, discovering, so so the first work on split brain patients was done by Michael Gazzaniga, neuroscientist, and Roger Sperry. Um, and Gazzaniga's written um, many books, and he talks about this work a lot, if, if anyone's interested. It's, it's very 
uh, it's fascinating to read the detailed accounts of the studies that were done. And but so so they found ways to access the right and left hemispheres of these patients' brains um, because they were separate. The two hemispheres were not sharing information, um, but the right visual field is connected to the left hemisphere. And, and so this, this is true of most of our body, our right, the information from our right hand is delivered to the left hemisphere. Of course, in a normal brain, in a healthy brain, all this information is shared, but that's, that's where it gets sent. Hmm. Um, and so it's, the, there's some variation, but for the most part, the right half of the body, the right visual field, the right ear, all of that information coming in through those senses is being delivered to the left hemisphere and vice versa. Um, and the language center of the brain, not in everyone's brain, but in most brains is in the left hemisphere. And so in the, they tested this first, but in these patients, um, where the language, um, center was in their left hemisphere, um, they went, so, so they could ask them different questions and present them with, um, different visual stimulus in their right and left hemisphere. So they could present something to the right hemisphere um, which is being projected onto the left hemisphere only. Um, let's see if they were projecting um, the word penny. So, sorry, I, al I always get confused it's, when it's I... A lot, it's a lot to remember, <laughs> oh so I, I, I commend you for <laughs> knowing, remembering all this. <laughs> um, but essentially, they can ask each hemisphere the same question. Mm -hmm. um, because the person can answer either with writing with their, sorry, they can answer, they can speak with their left hemisphere. So they can yep. answer verbally the way you and I would and say, that's a penny. Um, and that would be the left hemisphere communicating that message. They can give the left hand options for picking things out. What did you see? Um, and the left hand is being controlled by the right hemisphere. So the left mm -hmm. hand can pick something up and, and answer the question that way. I can, can also point to words. Um, and in all of these patients, there's some difference in how the left and right hemisphere feels about different things. So you can ask a question. Um, a couple of these patients were children. Um, this, is a, this was a very famous example. They asked this child what he wanted to be when he grew up, and he had different answers. His right and left hemispheres had different answers. Wow. Um, you see things that are termed um, hemispheric rivalry, where someone will be getting dressed and their and their hands literally start fighting with each other because the right hemisphere, you know, wants to put on a sweater and the left hemisphere has, wants to wear a jacket. And um, they can be in these bizarre circumstances where one hand is trying to get them dressed while the other hand is taking the item of clothing off. An um, example so of in, the children, how drastically yeah. different was it that mm. the career paths that they wanted to take? Were there any observations around that? Was it like similar or yeah. like a restaurant and scientist or was it <laughs> completely different? Um, the, the, the one I believe from this famous study was, I think it was a race car driver. Okay. They were very typical um, I, I hate to say it in this day and age, but very typical boy <laughs> response. Sure, sure, yeah, like race car, car basketball player. I mean, there are things that he probably weren't was not interested in when he actually grew up. Yeah. Um, but they were different answers, and and this this has now just been shown time and time again um, mm. with all kinds of things for for preferences um, and thoughts, and there's even a, a documented case of a man who had one hemisphere was a um, a believing Christian, and the other hemisphere was an atheist. 
Um, but but the most, yeah. Um, and there are many cases you can read about these cases. They're they're incredibly interesting. Um, but the 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 cases where you just see it, you know, based on just a momentary experience where, and, and this really does also get at this experience of self because we really feel when we have a preference for something, even something as simple as I feel like wearing a sweater right now. Mm. Um, that's very much my preference. That's what I want. I'm exerting my free will. Um, and it's very interesting to think that within a single human brain, those desires and wants in the same moment um, can be split. And most neuroscientists who, who have worked with these patients and, and all neuroscientists really um, assume that there are now two centers of consciousness in a split brain patient as well. So that it really, that they become more like um, conjoined twins, twins mm. that have separate brains who are sharing a body um, than like a, a single person. And you mean they have so two that, consciousness? Like the Really? That's, that is what that's what's assumed that the, that the two hemispheres are no longer communicating with each other at all. So when someone gets asked a question um, and one says, I feel like eating spaghetti and the other hemisphere says, I hate spaghetti. Those are two separate conscious experiences delivering those messages. Right. You, you we assume that you have to have the same feeling you and I have when someone asks us a question, right? It's, it feels like a unified self and a unified conscious experience that is not available to anyone else. So if someone asks the two of us, what do you feel like having for lunch? Um, and I want a turkey sandwich. Sushi. I don't have any idea what you're going to say. I don't yeah. even want a turkey sandwich. I just said that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Free will. Very specific. Um, for some reason, that, yeah, for some reason, that was the example that came to mind. Um, yeah. But I can't even know what you're going to say um, because mm. it's your private conscious experience. Um, and so, yes, most people assume, most neuroscientists assume that something like that is happening in a split brain patient because the two hemispheres are no longer communicating. Um I mean, the ethics of that is interesting, uh, and, and I actually wanted to go more into sense of self, so we'll definitely get back there, but the ethics yeah, of that is yeah. interesting if you have someone that has these conjoined, um, I guess, two different consciousness, and they were to perhaps do something unethical, who mm. is responsible for that yeah. when you have scientific evidence that this person has... Uh, a two, a, you know, a, a, a dual sense of self, and how yeah. who is the one to blame? Is it just? Yeah. I mean, I guess it's the same. It's the same ethical dilemmas you get into with conjoined twins, I imagine, because you can't punish one without punishing the other. I mean, they're they're in the same body, and it's so it's a very similar situation. Mm. Yeah. Um, so relating to this, yeah, no good. I was just going to say it, it reminds me of some examples that I like to give also. Um, oh, you froze again. I just want, oh no, maybe you are. Sometimes you are really still. <laughs> I am. I am. It's I ridiculous. Be, because we have a bad connection, sometimes I just want to make sure that I. I still I'm just going to like trick you now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, um, so, um, oh, yeah. So, so there, so there's a lot that we understand about the brain now that puts us in a very um, difficult and confusing situations regarding ethics and choice and free will. Um, so th there's a whole area here. In, in my book, I talk a lot about parasites, just because mm. it's so interesting how, how parasites can affect the brains of their hosts. 
Um, and there are also bacteria and viruses that can affect people's brains. Um, and tum there are famous cases of people who have tumors where in their brain, um, pressing on a certain part of the brain where they have been ethical, wonderful, loving um, model citizens their entire lives. And then a tumor grows in a certain part of their brain and suddenly they have a desire to start killing people. Mm. Um, and the ethics of that are, are very complex too. You know, how, how do you, um, how do you punish someone like that? How do you even think of punishment? Um, punishment is, is the first thing that comes into question about how that makes sense. Um, and then it, you start to wonder how that makes sense for anyone because is anyone controlling the brain they're born with or the brain yeah. that was, you know, molded throughout their life. And, um, recently actually I was just reading about, um, COVID has, um, in some small percentage of cases affects the brain and it can affect the brain in different ways. And neuroscientists are, are looking into this now, but there's one specific effect that has been reported in so many hospitals in so many regions that there, there was recently a New York times article about it. I, I can send to you, but, yeah. um, it affects the brain and it's, it's hard to understand it so goes against our intuitions for our our feeling that our self is kind of a, a solid entity that has certain characteristics. Um, but people who are affected with this start to have um, paranoid delusions. And what's common among most of them is they have a desire to decapitate people, which is so strange. I mean, it, it's, it's so interesting what you know, how the brain works, how it's organized, that you could even just push on a certain part of the brain in a certain way and cause someone to have that feeling. Um, and so, and, and, and some people have actually carried out these horrific crimes. Um, many of them are actually, so, so the, the thing that seems to be common um, among them is this strong desire to decapitate people. And usually there's a delusion that goes along with it. They Aliens are here that you know, I think that that varies a lot. There's there's some something they're afraid of and they need to decapitate people in order to solve this problem in order to save them in order to um, what whatever whatever reasoning they have in their and their sp specific delusion, but the impulse is the same and for many of these people It's their children and luckily um, scientists are becoming more aware of this so that they can you know get on on top of, of people's behavior before they act on it. But um, yeah, ma many parents who have this condition based on COVID affecting their brains in a certain way are having this impulse to decapitate their children. Like the most counterintuitive thing you could imagine you could create, you could cause someone, a, a good loving person to do. Um, and it just shows you how, it's a, it's a very strong example of how much our behavior, our thoughts, our desires, everything we experience is a product of our, our brain processing. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it, I guess as we learn more about this power of, of, of the brain and how we can impact certain decisions and behaviors that we have. I mean, I think I, 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 there was a tweet or a quote in an article where, where the justice system, you know, will, will, will look back one day in a hundred years mm -hmm. once we have a better understanding of the brain and we'll be ashamed at the number of people that, yeah we have put to sentence because of this lack of understanding yeah. that we had in the brain. It was simply just yeah. simply rewiring with, you know, that could potentially be done with like something like Neuralink or something like that. Right. Um, yeah. yeah. Around the segue of future tech and perhaps love, mm -hmm. I'm 
Curious to know if you've seen this episode on Black Mirror, where... I haven't watched Black Mirror, so I'm sure I haven't seen that specific episode. <laughs> it might be good because you seem to have a very positive outlook in terms of consciousness, and Black Mirror is obviously the opposite of this in terms of yes. the dark side of it. But yes. one of the episodes is where a widow loses her husband, unfortunately, and is able to use... Um, I'm going to butcher like the, 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 the description of it, but she's, she's able to, through future tech, be able to bring this exact form of her husband alive from a physical point. And uh -huh. using AI, the, she's able to program his voice and his sense of humor and all of these things in exact form. And perhaps yeah. a more, more later example, kind of the one that really popularizes this is the movie Her with Scarlett Johansson. Yeah. Yeah. where the man falls in love with an AI assistant. Do you yeah. think, in your perspective, that humans require someone else, at least the belief that this person has consciousness in order to be able to fall in love with them? Mm. Yes, I mean, it's tricky. I think, I, think the, I think the answer is yes, but the thing that's... Um, not clear is whether our intuitions just need to be convinced or whether our intellect needs to be convinced. And many people are talking about this now, this, this line, I forget, there's actually a term for it, um, for the point at which AI becomes so good, um, you know, including the replication of skin and, and, you know, facial expression and all of that, where um, they can mimic another human being so well that our intuition is that they're conscious, even if we know that they're not. So we can be told, okay, this thing is AI, we created it, we know, but it's not actually possible that anyone could know, but let's just say we could know, you know, hypothetically, we can say to you, this, this robot is not conscious. Um, I mean, this is really Westworld, right? This is, mm -hmm. this is um, I've only seen a few episodes of it, but it's really the basis of that is the assumption that they're, they're not, they don't have a conscious experience, but, um, our intuitions are so strong that if I presented you with uh, an AI that looked like a human being, seemed like a human being, sounded like a human being, and I just said you, they're not conscious, you still might not be able to act as if they weren't conscious. Um, and I right. mean, in Westworld, I guess they do. You know, like you can you can murder this robot for fun. You can you know fulfill this violent fantasy you have because it doesn't actually hurt anyone um but whether we're capable of that or not um i mean i think i think most people aren't i think we will still feel and act as if they are conscious even if we're told that they're not um mm -hmm. and the truth is we won't know <laughs> we'll never um, know i mean it could yeah, be an ai that's trying to not. convince us that they are conscious beings but we will never know whether that's the case, right? Yeah, I mean, my hope is that we can advance far enough in our understanding of consciousness that, that we will have some sense, yeah. um, at least of the content of what could be conscious if the thing is conscious. Um, what do you think that could be if you were to just kind of make some predictions? 
I, I really have no idea, but I know there are some scientists working on this, and it's very interesting work. Giulio Tononi is a, a neuroscientist, um, and his theory has been and written about and actually used practically in, in patients who have locked-in syndrome. Um, mm-hmm. His theory is called um, integrated information theory. I don't know if you've heard about it, um, but it's Giulio Tononi, and the, and the neuroscientist um, Christoph Koch is now working with him. They've written, um, Christoph just wrote a book, forgetting the name um i'll i'll send you um i'll send you the name of that book where he where he gives the a, a full explanation of what iit claims and um and then the practical use of it and so there's um i, I forget where this was most recently published i'm sure there's something in the new york times on on this method mm-hmm. but it was um the popular term of it is zap and zip um and it's it's a complicated procedure that i i probably don't need to explain in detail, but they've actually been able to apply integrated information theory to a device that that delivers an an electrical stimulus and based on the output of that, based on what they read from the EEG after delivering the electrical impulse, um, they can make a calculation to determine whether someone is conscious. And now it's, it's been proven that this technique works. It's not, um, it's not foolproof and it's, it's, there's there's a lot of more work that has to be done for it to be sure. as precise as we would need it to be, but it has been able to detect consciousness in locked-in patients where the person is later conscious and can confirm that yes, um, they they were in fact conscious. And there's actually um, another method now they're using, um, which I find so interesting. And then they did a collaboration with Tononi's team um, to see if integrated information theory applied to this patient. So they had this patient who was, seemed to be in a vegetative state. They assumed there was no consciousness there. I can't remember why. It's not, they, there were some hints that they might be conscious, and I forget what, what reason they had for, for being suspicious about it. And so someone came up with a method, a neuroscientist, where they put this patient in an fMRI scanner um, and told her she was a tennis player, and they told her to imagine playing tennis. Um, and then to imagine something else that would have activated a very different part of the brain. So, so imagining playing tennis would activate a lot of the parts of the brain that would be activated when you actually play tennis. Mm-hmm. Um, I forget what that was, um, but but so, so what it was um, contrasted with. But they were they were attempting to get her to willingly trigger different parts of her brain, and this was in fact detected on the fMRI. It was very clear that when she was thinking about tennis that you know that those parts of her brain would light up and when they were telling her to think and, and she was following the instructions of the experimenters um and then this was also confirmed with this the zip and zap and zip i think it's called mm-hmm. technique where yeah. um the information they got from um from their procedure on the same patient's brain showed that there was consciousness. Um, and so, yeah, so that, I mean, that work will just continue. I think we'll inevitably just get better and better at that. I, I don't think that work is very relevant for knowing how deep into the universe consciousness runs. I think it's um, very likely relevant for, I, I think the thing it's, it's um, likely doing well is, sensing whether the type of experience that you and I are having right now of being a self and being able to experience pain and thoughts and the types of, you know, 
human mind experiences that that we value and that are important and that are very likely um, necessary for for any real suffering to take place. I think they are getting better at detecting that, and of course, that is um, a huge service to humanity and to anyone who becomes unconscious to to be able to have a tool to know whether they actually are experiencing something. That would be huge. Yeah. Wow. Well, Annika, I guess as a way to close off, and and I think initially I was trying to ask you about this in the beginning, but Mm. what is the purpose of all this? What is the... I don't mean life, but let's let's yeah. distill it down a little bit. But what is the purpose of consciousness? And I think evolutionary perspective-wise, you know, most mm-hmm. people are led to believe that everything that we have through natural selection serves some sort of a purpose that has helped us survive. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, I was even going back to talking about Donald Hoffman, I was talking about, because he claims, you know, the false reality that we live in and, one of the questions yeah. I asked him was like, why, what's the purpose of being able to see a star at night mm. and what's the payoff of that for survival? And mm. just curious to get your thoughts on this mm. underlying layer of all the, you know, the hour discussion that we had about consciousness. What is the purpose yeah. of it and how does it serve us? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what's interesting is, and, and part of the reason why I'm so interested in, in just starting with these two questions that I, that I referenced um, is if we're wrong about our assumptions about consciousness, um, that it is driving behavior. And we didn't get into this very much, but, but, um, there's a lot of evidence now in modern neuroscience that the feeling we have, the intuition we have that I have the conscious intention and then the behavior follows, um, that that's often not the way, or it may never be the way the brain is is working that often, all of the decision making, all of the behavior, there, there's like a subconscious processing. And, and um, I think the way I put it in my book is that consciousness is the last to know that we're kind of just delivered um, everything, including the feeling that we have decided to do something, um, but that that's not actually the cause of, of, of what we're um, doing. And so there are a lot of reasons to question what we think consciousness is doing and what it's for. And then you go back a step and realize that that affects how we look at the evolution argument because if, and, and I, and I really don't know, this is an open question, but if consciousness is not serving the functions we think it is, then the evolution argument goes out the window because the evolution argument is, well, consciousness enables us to A, B, and C, and that's why it evolved. But if that's not actually the function of consciousness, um, then it's it's possibly something that didn't evolve and that was here long before even life. Um, and mm. so if if there's a property of matter, if it's actually something much more basic and much more simple and much more pervasive so that um, matter has all of these these fundamental properties that that we know about, um, but that in fact, there's also an intrinsic property of what what it feels like to be that matter, whatever that matter is. Um, then consciousness just came along with all of the other behaviors that evolution formed, but it was there prior to that. Um, and so we just don't know. Right, right. And not everything that we have kind of that we're experiencing today doesn't necessarily have to be coming from that, you know, from like a natural selection perspective, right? It doesn't have to be. Right, right. 
Yeah. Yes. No, for sure. We can, we've definitely hacked evolution. <laughs> um, I mean, usually it's, it's, it can explain our our interests, our drives, our the things we care about. But in terms of what we end up producing, what we end up um, doing, how we end up behaving, um, even the things we have access to, like stars, which obviously we don't need to see stars, but we get to see stars because we need to see other things, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but but as far as consciousness goes, no. This is this is one big question for me is whether it is something that evolved or whether it was actually there before. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's prior very, to life. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's a very interesting way to took it, look at that. And I think that's a good kind of end off point. You know, I, we didn't discuss the delayed consciousness part. And I think it's so fascinating, especially with the, the addition and subtraction example that you give and the pushing of uh, the buttons. Um, yeah. I think it's a good, <laughs> reason for people to go in and, and, and read the book because it definitely goes deeper into um, into kind of the examples of that. It's fascinating. Right, right. So I would highly recommend people to check out the book Conscious and uh, learn more about Annika, of course. So where can people you. find yeah. you online? And maybe we can go over kind of some of the interesting things that you've got coming up that we talked about before the interview started. Oh, right. Sure. Um, yeah. So my website is just my name, AnnikaHarris.com. And Annika is not spelled any way you would guess. <laughs> it's <laughs> A-N-N-N-A-K-A Harris.com. Um, and yeah, so I was saying that I'm, I'm currently working on an audio series, um, which is basically just picking up where the book left off. Um, so I still obviously had many unanswered questions, many more. I had done a lot of research, years of research, um, and interviews for my book. And I still had a long list of people that I was interested in talking to. And my, my own ideas, um, have developed and evolved and, um, as I was saying, I, I, so I've written a couple of articles that, about how my updating my my view of things, um, and then this audio series is just taking it even further. So I'm I'm talking to many physicists about um, how it might work, what it would look like if consciousness were fundamental. Um, I speak to Lee Smolin and Brian Green and Jan Eleven. Um, and Sean Carroll, and I get all, all these um, incredibly fascinating views on in different interpretations of quantum mechanics, and um, and also I am speaking to philosophers and neuroscientists like David Eagleman, and so I, I, I'm just continuing to ask questions and kind of shape my ideas, and uh, I'll probably be done interviewing people for this project in about six months, and I imagine it'll come out in about a year and then there's very likely to be a film project based on the Mm. audio series so could we see a Um, podcast from you as well it seems like of course you've got all the right equipment i'm I'm calling it an audio series um and i don't actually i call it that because people now think of podcasts mostly as what you're doing which is kind of an ongoing like a radio show um and i really this this project that i'm working on um will probably have 10 to 20 episodes, but it will be kind of a complete series that has a beginning, middle, and an end. Um, and it will be highly edited and, and highly produced. So I, I, for whatever reason, I'm just more interested in creating kind of a finished, polished product than, mm-hmm. than doing regular interviews um, sure. in that way. But I, I have a feeling that I'm not going to lose interest <laughs> in this subject. So 
um, yeah, once I'm on the other side of these projects, I'm sure there'll be something else um, that I'm working on related to consciousness. So I love it. So I've, I've read a very poorly joke written in one of the interviews that you had of someone mentioning uh, your husband, Sam, where they said <laughs> that this, that Sam actually took a good name for your podcast, which is Waking Up With Sam, oh. <laughs> Sam Harris, which is like, you're really the only person that wakes up with Sam Harris on a physical basis. <laughs> I was like, oh God. <laughs> Underrated, but poorly tasted joke, I felt, but I just thought I should mention that. Yeah. Anika, thanks so much for uh, for coming on the show. I, I'll link all the show notes. And um, yeah, if you're able to send over kind of the, some of the research that we discussed, I, I'll definitely link that out. So thank you so okay. much. Sounds good. Thank you. It was fun to talk. Thanks for making it all the way to the end of the show. Hope you really enjoyed our guest today and that you took one thing valuable from our conversation. If you haven't already, I would love it if you could leave a quick rating or review on whichever network you're listening to the show and share this episode with one friend if you found it valuable. And if it's something that a friend, a family member, or just someone that you care about could find a little bit of insight from what you learned today. All right. Ciao.